Welcome back to Historical Fantasy. I'm Guinevere Lee. You are about to hear Chapter 4 of Leda and the Samurai. If you haven't already, please go back and listen to Chapter 1, 2, and 3 before you continue. Leda and the Samurai by Guinevere Lee, as read by the author. Chapter 4, Sendai. She felt the cool water hit her face as the strength in her limbs gave out and she collapsed into the river. She was fully immersed for a moment, her eyes staring at the stones on the riverbed that twinkled in the sunlight. Were the stones real? If she reached out to touch one, would she feel their smoothness on her skin? Or would they dissipate like smoke and leave her floating alone in nothingness? Strong hands grabbed her shoulders, pulling her out of the water. She coughed and sputtered, able to breathe once more. But she had no strength left to fight whoever was holding her. The fisherman dragged her to the far side of the shore. She stared at the grass, remembering how many times she had walked along these shores by herself, or spent the day there with her friends having a barbecue. She had loved spending time by the river. Now these shores seemed alien, unfriendly. The man said something, but she couldn't make out his words through the haze in her head. She looked up at him, his face hidden in shadow by his hat, the sun silhouetting his body. He grabbed her arm, and the pain, a moment ago forgotten, was suddenly the only thing she could feel. She called out in agony. It felt like her left arm was on fire. She struggled to pull away from him. Stop it! Don't touch it! She screamed. The man went completely still, pulled away from her, and she could just make out his sharp eyes widen in surprise. He didn't have a chance to say anything, though. They both suddenly heard rumbling and turned their attention towards the woods. The sound was like a heavy wooden door creaking open, but it was massive and reverberated across the hills. She saw trees shaking in the distance, and when there was a great crash she realized she was hearing trees being knocked down. The shaking leaves were moving towards them. She tried to imagine the bandits all together charging towards them, but there was no way this was being done by a group of hungover humans. Shmata, the fisherman muttered, and bundled her into his arms, lifting her like she was a bag of rice. He took off at a quick pace. The noise became louder as he carried her. There was no doubt whatever was in the woods was coming for them. She suddenly felt her legs get swung up, landing onto something hard. She realized it was a horse's back as the animal's head reared up and snorted. The fisherman put her on its bare back, the saddle forgotten, hanging over a branch. He grabbed on and swung himself up behind her. She sat awkwardly, with her legs to one side. He put his arms tightly around her so she wouldn't slide off completely, as he grabbed onto the horse's reins. With a shout and a kick of his legs, the horse was suddenly galloping. One of his arms came off the reins, wrapping around her waist. Her left arm hung uselessly at her side, bouncing up and down with the motion of the horse. She gritted her teeth in pain, gripping onto the man's arm with her right hand. Terrified she'd fall off and he would just leave her for whatever was lurking in the trees. The horse turned around the bend of a hill and onto a dirt road. She felt the world go still as she saw what was behind the hill. Hirose River curved around Sendai, coming down from the mountains west of the city. It twisted south before heading east towards the ocean. Sendai City was nestled on that river bend. She had read how Date Masamune, the daimyo general who had founded this city, had picked the location for how easy it was to defend. The land northeast of the river was flat farmland all the way to the ocean. 
Yesterday, it had been a mass of 30-story buildings, cars, and over one million people. Now she was staring at a picture of a feudal era village, a white samurai castle shining on the hill overlooking the river, the village, and all the land surrounding them. No, not a picture. She felt her mind ache. She knew it was real, but she still couldn't form the words for what had happened. They rode over a bridge, heading towards the low buildings with slanted thatch roofs. The horse thundering past peasants wearing dark brown or blue yucatas. She caught a whiff of street merchants selling food. She could hear the calls of voices. There were other horses in the streets, carts with no wheels that men carried, and children running by the river. They turned into the village, not slowing down, some people jumping out of the way to avoid the horse trampling over them. She let herself slump forward, closing her eyes, the horse's mane brushing against her face. She breathed the earthy scent of the horse in. It wasn't pleasant. It was strong and it made her want to sneeze, but it was real. How and why and when all ran through her head, jumbling together and melting away. But she pushed them all away. It didn't matter. This was real. The horse suddenly reared up, coming to an abrupt halt. She opened her eyes, feeling panic rise up in her again. But when she looked around, she saw they had come into a small courtyard. Someone ran forward, grabbing the reins of the horse to keep it from bolting. A group of five or six people came out of the main house, rushing over to them. Lita couldn't focus on anything. The man was suddenly not on the horse, and then she was being lowered onto the ground. They were shouting. She gasped in pain as she felt her left arm being jerked. Someone was ripping the sleeve of her yukata to get to the arrow. She opened her mouth to scream at them to stop, but as she lifted her head she caught sight of the rest of her body. Her yukata was unrecognizable in shape. It was muddied and torn and she understood in a strange moment of clarity, completely unsalvageable. Despite the panic of the people suddenly surrounding her, she felt a strange calmness seep through her. She wiggled her toes, realizing for the first time her gaita were gone though she had no idea when she had lost them. With her head on the ground, she could tell the bun holding her hair up had long since fallen out and she must have looked wild and unkempt. She was certain her face and legs were just as torn as the yukata, probably bleeding here and there, too. She turned her head to see the fisherman leaning against the walls of the courtyard, taking his hat off, letting her see his face for the first time. He did look to be around twenty. His eyes were a light almond color, his hair long and pulled back into a tight top knot. He had high cheekbones and smooth, dark skin. A small, plump woman with gray hair was at his side, coddling him. His handsome face was strangely animated. His eyes widened in exaggeration as he spoke. His body language was like a stand-up comedian telling a story on stage. The calm, collected man who had made the bandit run away with one look had somehow been replaced by a clown. He had been just as scared as she had been, she realized. The thought nearly made her laugh. She looked over the faces of the other people gathered around her. The initial panic had worn down, but they all stared at her intensely, some muttering to themselves, two of them busily tying a tourniquet over her now bare arm. They weren't looking at her out of curiosity or concern, she knew. They were looking at her because she was unquestionably not Japanese. The woman who had been talking to the fisherman turned her attention towards Lita now. She moved through the small crowd and started giving stern, though not unkind, orders, and two of the men lifted her and carried her into the house. They were careful not to touch her left arm, but with every jolt of their steps, pain would flare up and she ground her teeth to keep from crying out. The main entrance led to a small garden, surrounded by a hall that wound around it. 
They sighed towards the garden open. They walked down the hall, moving into a small room with tatami mats on the floor. A futon was quickly grabbed from some unseen corner and placed down. They laid her down, going to the sliding doors on the outside of the room and opening them to let more light into the dim place. She felt a cool cloth placed on her forehead and noticed for the first time that she was trembling. Someone was muttering and she made out the word Isha, doctor, and a few moments later a man rushed into the room. He wore a long flowing kimono and a young boy ran in after him, holding a large lacquered box. The doctor knelt by her side, gently feeling around her wound with thin, cold fingers. Lita gasped slightly as he touched the arrow, barely moving it, and yet it felt as though he had yanked on it. Faster than she could hope to follow, he started speaking to the young assistant, who opened the box and began to pull out a few instruments, laying them down on a white cloth next to the futon. She thought she heard him say not to worry, and maybe also sorry, but she started to feel herself slipping away from consciousness and didn't hear properly. Then there was a pain she could not ignore, and she instinctively tried to pull away, only to find strong hands holding her firmly so she couldn't move. The boy was holding the arrow firmly in his small hands while the doctor was sawing at it with a small tool. Lita couldn't help but whimper as shockwaves of pain went through her body. When he had finally sawed the arrow clean through, he pulled away the end. He had cut as close to the skin as he would dare go, and with a sickening lurch of her stomach, Lita realized he meant to pull the arrow through, to complete the path the arrowhead had begun through her flesh. She had a vague thought that she should try to be brave, try not to scream and cry like a girl in front of these strange men. But as the doctor started to pull the arrow through, the tears came easily enough. It seemed to never end, and she soon found herself shouting, "'Just pull it! Just pull it faster!' She didn't notice the strange stares her outburst received. And then mercifully, and finally, the damn thing was out. She felt relief at first, and then dizzy. She suddenly felt very light. Her eyes wandered towards her wound, noticing the red running down her extended arm. She had a brief realization that it was blood. A lot of blood? She didn't know, but she did notice the room start to darken, and... When Lita woke up, she was first aware of her dry mouth. She felt like her tongue was swollen and rolling around in dirt. She felt the pain in her arm next, dull and throbbing, consistent. Whereas before it had felt like liquid fire being poured on her arm, now it felt more like firm hands squeezing on her upper arm. She opened her eyes and looked around the room. The sliding doors to her right were still open, and outside she could see the white walls surrounding the main house. Between the walls and her room was a garden of moss and small bushes with flowers of various colors. From the light she guessed it was most likely evening, but evening of the same day she couldn't tell. She tried to sit herself up, but lifting her head up she felt a sudden wave of dizziness and fell back again. A man was by her head, kneeling next to her with a kind look on her face. The fisherman, she realized. How long had he been waiting for her to wake up? He didn't look like a fisherman anymore, though. His plain yukata had been replaced by a white kimono and a light blue hakama, a type of trousers that were functional to move around in but looked like flowing robes, and a matching kataginu, which was like a vest with big shoulders and no sides, patterned with a crest she couldn't quite make out in the dusk light. Mizu. Water. She managed to croak. Her voice was dust rushing from an old book slammed shut. He crossed his legs, making himself comfortable. There was a bowl next to her head, she saw. 
and he gently put one hand behind her head, lifting it slightly and then tipped the bowl gently into her lips, letting the cold water slowly run down her throat. He was concentrating on his task, but she was staring at him intently. The starched, spotless kimono, the large house with pristine gardens, the matronly servant fawning over him in the courtyard. He wasn't a fisherman. From the house and the katana he wore even now, she assumed he must have been in the samurai class. He put the bowl down and rested her head back against the futon. He looked at her, their eyes met. She expected him to say something, but he was completely silent, his face an unreadable smiling no-mask. She started to feel uneasy. What was she supposed to say? All of her Japanese suddenly drained from her head, save for the most basic thing she knew. Hajimemashite. Leda desu. Dozo yoroshiku. She trailed off, feeling suddenly silly, but to her surprise, his face lit up. The entire room seemed to brighten. Dozo yoroshiku, he said. With his hands on his hips, he bowed his head ever so slightly. Miyamoto Benosuke desu. Miyamoto-san? The name was meaningless to her, not giving her any clues as to who he was or what his position was. She thought of the cold stare he had given the bandit, how scared he had suddenly been. He's a samurai, the thought came to her suddenly. Exactly how high-ranking a samurai, she had no idea. Anohito, that person, you could have killed him? Benosuke laughed, a soft chuckle, and he rubbed the back of his head, as though embarrassed. Doubtful. I've never used that katana to kill. She looked at him in confusion. He had never used that katana? Or any katana? Just what kind of samurai was he anyway? Reida-san. Like most Japanese, he was unable to pronounce her name except with a soft R sound. Where did you come from? What was she supposed to say? Canada is hardly a country he would know, not to mention it didn't even exist yet. She certainly couldn't say she currently lived in Sendai since she was still in Sendai. Would he be aware of the New World? England is a place he might know, or France, but she didn't want to associate herself with countries he might consider enemies. She would rather he think she was insane than an enemy. Mirai kara, she whispered. From the future. To her surprise, he didn't look shocked or angry. Instead, he just put his hand on her forehead, smoothing back her hair, his thumb tracing a line on her forehead softly. He looked at her with nothing but kindness. Sleep now, he told her softly. And she closed her eyes, letting herself fall back into the quiet darkness of sleep. <laughs> Thanks for listening. I will be back tomorrow with the final chapter. For a complete list of all the chapters in this audiobook, please go to GuinevereLee.com. Until tomorrow, stay healthy, everyone.